0: From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad.
1: The most difficult time in any transition is when we think that success is in sight.
0: That's Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi in a 2012 speech welcoming President Obama to Burma, also known as Myanmar.
1: The United States has been staunch in its support of the democracy movement in Burma, and we are confident that this support will continue through the difficult years that lie ahead.
0: Obama was the first sitting American president to visit Burma. His visit followed the easing of sanctions and the beginning of what the Obama administration hoped would be the first step toward a new democracy in Burma.
2: And uh, I want to make a pledge to the people uh, of this country that uh, I am confident we can keep, and that is if we see continued progress towards reform, uh, our bilateral ties will grow stronger and we will do everything we can Uh, to help uh, ensure uh, success.
0: This speech came on the heels of President Obama's pivot to Asia, a promise to reform geopolitics in the region by forging new, stronger ties with China, South Korea, and the rest of the Asia-Pacific.
2: As the fastest-growing region in the world, the Asia-Pacific will shape so much of our security and prosperity in the century ahead, and it is critical to creating jobs and opportunity for the American people.
0: For its part, the Burmese government has taken some significant steps toward reform. It released Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest in 2010 and gave her a seat in parliament. Officials also released other political prisoners and eased restrictions on the press. But in recent months, with the fall election coming up, there's been what many people consider a backslide. The government has cracked down hard on student protests.
3: The riot police
4: seem pretty determined that they're not going to tolerate this student demonstration. You just a bar the
0: owner was recently arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for posting a picture of the Buddha wearing headphones.
4: It offended uh, some particularly hardline Buddhists here in Yangon. They went to the police. The police closed the bar down uh, and decided to prosecute.
0: And there are ongoing assault. cases of severe and unyielding religious persecution, especially against the Muslim minority in the western part of the
4: country. All the Evidence we've heard from victims paints a picture of a planned, organized attack in which the security forces at best did nothing and at worst took part.
0: Whether you see regression and repression or proof of progress, the case of Burma provides a unique glimpse into the challenges of moving from a military dictatorship to a more open society. Joining us to start the hour is David Williams. He's executive director of the Center for Constitutional Democracy at Indiana University, and he has spent years working with ethnic minorities in Burma. So first, the big question, and one that has real political significance, is it Burma or Myanmar?
5: Okay, so um, I always say Burma, even to this day. Um, The military government changed it to Myanmar, um, in the last century, toward the end of the last century. People who believe that Burma is not yet democratic call it Burma because that's the old name. They don't recognize the new name because it was pr- it was provided by the military government. The U.S. government still uses the name Burma. Um, increasingly, people in the resistance movements will go back and forth between the two because there has been some progress in recent years. Um, uh, from my end, if you want to say Myanmar, that's fine. I'm going to say Burma.
0: We're going to take our cue from David Williams and stick with Burma for now. Just like the name, everything about this country is complicated. So before we go any further, here's a quick primer. Burma is about the size of Texas. It's bordered by Bangladesh to the west, India and China to the north, and Laos and Thailand to the east, with a long border on the Bay of Bengal and the Andaman Sea. There are about 54 million people in Burma, and most of them are Buddhist, but there are also Christians and a small population of Muslims, many of whom have faced extreme persecution. We'll have more on that later in the program. One of the most divisive issues in Burma is the great ethnic diversity. About 60% of the population is Burmese. The rest is split between a lot of other groups, Indiana University's David Williams explains.
5: There are dozens and dozens of ethnic groups in Burma. It is one of the most ethnically complicated places in the world. But the main groups usually are taken to be the ones after which states in Burma are named. And so Mun state is named after the Mun. Karen state is named after the Karen. Kachin state after the Kachin. Chin state after the Chin.
0: There are seven states in total, each with their own language, their own traditions, and their own ideas about how the nation should be run. This separatism has led to one of the world's longest-running civil wars, ongoing since 1948. That was the year Burma gained independence from Britain, mainly due to the work of Aung San Suu Kyi's father, Aung San, who many consider the father of modern-day Burma and a national hero.
3: The
2: demand of our people is complete independence.
3: In Rangoon itself... 4.20 a.m. was the hour fixed by Burmese astrologers as the most auspicious time for the transfer of power.
0: But Aung San never was able to lead the new government. He, along with six officials, were assassinated by rivals shortly before power was handed over. U Nu became Burma's first prime minister. This from the Foreign Policy Association's Great Decisions TV series. Most
1: people don't know we had about 12 years of parliamentary democracy between 48 and 62. The military took over in 62, and uh, they ran a quasi-socialist, centralized economy. They didn't really understand modern economics and basically ran this very rich country to the ground.
0: The military ruled unchecked for the next 26 years. Then, in 1988, a group of students, monks, and other citizens rose up against the military leadership. The uprising ended with a bloody military crackdown just a month later. But that short-lived protest led to the emergence of Aung San Suu Kyi, the new leader of a growing opposition movement, the National League for Democracy, or NLD.
6: <laughs>
0: Aung San Suu Kyi was placed under house arrest for the first time in 1989. But her message was clear. When the country held open elections in 1990, her party won an overwhelming majority of the seats in parliament. The military junta refused to recognize those results, but the international community was paying attention. In 1991, Aung San Suu Kyi won the Nobel Peace Prize, an honor which she only heard about over the radio.
1: It did not seem quite real, because in a sense, I did not feel myself to be quite real at that time.
0: Aung San Suu Kyi was in and out of house arrest for the next 15 years. Then, in 2007, another uprising. Burmese monks staged large-scale protests known as the Saffron Revolution, saffron for the color of the robes the monks wore. This uprising, too, was suppressed by the Burmese military, and with that came swift condemnation from the West, including the United States.
7: The world has also been horrified. By the response of Burma's military junta. Monks have been beaten and killed. Thousands of pro-democracy protesters have been arrested. And Burma's dictator, Tuan Shui, continues to hold captive the leader of Burma's largest democratic party, Aung San Suu Kyi.
0: President George W. Bush announced more sanctions against the country. But then a shift what President Obama called flickers of progress. Elections are held, access to the Internet is loosened, and political prisoners are released. Obama sends Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. Two years later, Obama himself visits, reiterating his commitment to closer relations. Uh,
2: Today marks the next step in a new chapter between the United States and Burma. Last year, in response to early.
0: But that so, same oh, year, man. right around the time of Obama's visit, there was a harsh reminder of the ongoing problems in the country the persecution of ethnic and religious minorities. In October of 2012, the Arakanese ethnic group in Rakhine State in the West attacked the Rohingya, a Muslim minority also living in Rakhine State.
8: Buddhist attacks on Myanmar's Rohingya Muslims have picked up in the last few weeks following the rape of a Buddhist woman.
0: They burned thousands of houses to the ground and displaced hundreds of thousands of people in a demonstration of extreme Buddhist nationalism.
8: Thousands of Rohingya's have fled to Bangladesh, but thousands more have been refused entry. Or for those who
5: do
0: make the Rohingya's plight has been largely ignored by the international community, and Burma's central government, if anything, has made things worse for them. John Knauss is an expert on Burma with the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington.
9: I think the Rohingya situation is one that you have to take separately from a lot of the other ethnic minority problems that are in the country because the Rohingya, not only are they not allowed to vote, they're not given any rights as citizens and are not even recognized as citizens in the country. That is going to be a long-term problem that is going to take a lot of work to resolve.
0: Complicating the situation even further is a growing issue with human traffickers taking advantage of the desperate situation. There are about 140,000 Rohingya now living in displacement camps outside the Rakhine capital of Sitwe. The conditions in the camps are deplorable. There's a lack of food and health care, and no one is allowed to leave. The people are, in effect, prisoners in their own country. The traffickers offer them one of the only ways out. Producer Axel Kronholm sent this report from one of the camps.
8: Abdul, a scrawny Rohingya male in his 40s, leans forward, gazing into the screen of a dusty laptop where a Skype call is connecting. It's been 47 days since his 14-year-old daughter Dildar left the IDP camp on board a fishing boat, crammed with other Rohingya Muslims escaping the oppression in Myanmar. But until her traffickers are paid off, she's held captive in a secret location, somewhere on the border between Thailand and Malaysia. One of the traffickers picks up the phone, but the signal is bad.
9: Hello? Hello.
8: The call is cut off, and Abdul will have to try again in a few minutes. The Rohingya in Myanmar are stateless, refuse the rights and protection of normal citizens. In the eyes of the government and of many Burmese, they are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Simply referring to them as Rohingya can be controversial. Most people call them Bengali. The desperate conditions in the refugee camps in Myanmar push many Rohingya into the hands of human traffickers who promised them a shot at a better life in countries like Malaysia. But these traffickers are criminals out to make a profit and use lies to lure people onto their boats. Abdul's daughter Dildar was told that her trip would only be a couple hundred dollars US. Now the traffickers are demanding $1,500 for her freedom. Most
10: of the cases hinge on deception that takes place on shore. This is Matthew
8: Smith, executive director at Fortify Rights, an organization that has documented the persecution of Rohingya for many years.
10: So Rohingya are told, in many cases, that they'll pay a certain fee, typically $200 US, uh, to get on a boat, uh, to take them to Thailand or to Malaysia. When they get on that boat, they find that the conditions are not what they expected. People are crammed into relatively small fishing boats. So they're deprived of adequate space. They're deprived of food. They're deprived of water. And on top of that, the gangs that are operating these boats are highly abusive. So we've documented killings uh, at sea, um, rape and sexual violence. In some cases, Rohingya have committed suicide at sea. But
8: the hardships do not end there. The Rohingya who survived the trip over the Andaman Sea will face further abuses once they get to shore.
10: Most people get on the boats thinking that they're going directly to Malaysia. What they find is that they're taken on shore in Thailand and clandestinely transported to what we refer to as torture camps and these are camps, there are a number of them still today with thousands of Rohingya being held captive by these transnational criminal syndicates They are beaten, in some cases, beaten mercilessly, tortured. They're handed cell phones, and they're told to call anybody that can raise money that would, in effect, ensure their freedom.
8: And at that point, the fee is no longer a few hundred dollars, but up to as much as $2,000 US. And even if the families cannot pay, the traffickers can still make money off the refugees.
10: If, after several months, their families are not able to raise the money to free them, they can be sold to fishing boats. They can be sold to other sectors in Thailand or in Malaysia. Young girls or women are often sold into forced marriages. So it's a very large, serious regional problem.
8: Back in the refugee camp outside of Sitway, the 3G connection is more stable now. And Abdul makes another attempt to call the traffickers who are holding his daughter captive. For each dial tone, his breathing gets heavier.
6: Hello.
8: Abdul finally gets Hello. through to the trafficker, who repeats his demand. $1,500 and Dildar will be set free. Abdul works as a tri driver, and on a good day he can earn up to $1.50 U.S. He explains that he will never be able to earn enough money to raise $1,500. So he asks the trafficker at the other end of the line if there is any chance that they could marry off his daughter to a man, thereby getting her out of the jungle camp. All the other girls here are leaving because their parents are paying, the trafficker says. It's only Dildar that nobody wants to pay for. And then it happens. <laughs>
9: <laughs>
8: the trafficker hands over the phone to Dildar, who at this point hasn't had any contact with her parents since she left 47 days ago.
11: They're
9: all not
8: you borrow money from someone, asks Dildar? From who? I have no relatives that can lend me that kind of money. We are broke, Abdul answers.
9: Daddy,
8: all the other girls are leaving from here, Dildar says. I know, I know, says her father. And before Dildar gets a chance to say goodbye, the trafficker takes back the phone. If you manage to raise the money, call me again, says the trafficker. I will try, God willing, says Abdul, and again begs the trafficker to try to come up with some kind of solution. (laughs) This trade in people has become a very lucrative business as the number of Rohingya refugees from Myanmar has reached record highs over the last few years. Matthew Smith's organization estimates that around 250,000 Rohingya have left Myanmar on boats since 2012. In June, the U.S. government will present its annual Trafficking in Persons Report, a worldwide ranking of countries' efforts to combat human trafficking. And Matthew Smith expects that this year's report will downgrade Myanmar to the lowest possible ranking. For America Abroad, I'm Axel Cronholm.
0: This trafficking in persons, or TIP, report that's put out by the State Department every June could put pressure on the Burmese government to improve treatment of the Rohingya and other ethnic minorities in Burma because the demotion would justify reinstating some sanctions. But former diplomat to Burma Priscilla Clapp says the problem with human trafficking is indicative of a larger issue, one that sanctions won't solve. The trafficking is
1: happening by criminal gangs. It's not the military that's out there trafficking in persons. It's not the government that's doing it. They would like to stop it, but they don't have control over the remote parts of the country.
0: Klaps says gaining control over the renegade Burmese states is going to take time.
1: Democracy is inherently confrontational. All the forces in a society are constantly negotiating with each other to resolve differences, to find uh, compromises in how to move forward. They don't know how
0: to do that. The UN Human Rights Office came down hard on the military's lack of response to the Rohingya problem. Special Rapporteur to Burma, Yang he Lee, addressed the Human Rights Council in March.
6: There have still been no credible investigations into the serious human rights violations that took place in, in 2012 and 2014.
0: But Priscilla Clapp says we shouldn't be so quick to blame the military for all the nation's ills. The society itself has got to change. And that's
1: going to be a long, slow process. And it takes ages, generations, for a society to learn how to manage democracy.
0: You're listening to Burma at the Crossroads on America Abroad. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Burma at the Crossroads on America Abroad.
3: I have to decide as I give this speech for the 100th anniversary of General Aung San in Natmak whether I will talk about him as a father or as a leader.
0: Tens of thousands of people gathered in Natmak, a flat, dusty city in the center of Burma, It's mid-February, and they're celebrating what would have been the 100th birthday of Aung San, a national hero and father of Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi. She's giving a speech in his honor.
1: Before I came to Natmark, I checked the speech that my
3: daddy made when daddy got to Natmark for the last time in 1947. When I looked at it, it was a very good coincidence. In that speech, daddy said, I will govern this country with love and loyalty. Try to think how many leaders are there who say that they would govern the country with love and loyalty. It's not easy.
0: Aung San Suu Kyi has a devout following in Burma and throughout the world. To learn more about her, we're joined now by Peter Popham, a former South Asia correspondent for the British newspaper, The Independent, where he spent many years covering Burma. He's also the author of a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi. It's called The Lady and the Peacock. Peter, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Right, so let's talk about the lady Aung San Suu Kyi. Tell us about her rise to political prominence. How did she become so famous?
4: She went back to Burma, having lived in England for many years, uh, married to an Oxford professor, bringing up her two sons in. perfectly normal, kind of respectable middle class way, went back to Burma in 1988 because her mother, who was a former ambassador and a very important person in her own right, had a very serious stroke. And so she went back and basically nursed her and slept and lived in her a hospital room for months in early 1988 this was the time when by coincidence there was a major uprising uh, against the military government uh, which had presided over one economic catastrophe after another and she found herself after a period of months she was being besieged by people involved in the uprising asking her to get involved, mainly because her dad was a symbol of Burmese independence, uh, the founder of the Burmese army, and she was regarded as a potentially good figurehead for the popular uprising. So very unwillingly at first, finally she was persuaded to speak. She galvanized an enormous crowd with her very strong, very brave speech. And really that was the beginning of the story. So she
0: accepts her destiny in 1988, and then a year later, she's placed under house arrest.
4: Yes, she had this extraordinary six months of storming around the country, holding mass meetings uh, with tens and hundreds of thousands of people uh, hanging on her words, joining up her party. It clocked up three million members within about six months. Uh, The government took serious fright, and in July 1989, she and the rest of the people who were the founders of the party were locked up. She was locked up in her home. All the rest of them were locked up in prison.
0: And she stayed there till 1995. So six yeah, years. she
4: had uh, they they kept her in detention until 95, when a lot of outside pressure persuaded them to let her out. But that didn't last long. She was out for a couple of years, and then they again took fright because she was still so popular, and they locked her up again. This was repeated three or four times up until 2010, when she was when the whole situation had changed and she was released for good.
0: So while she was under house arrest, as you say, for 15 years, she won a Nobel Prize and her reputation only got stronger. So that must have infuriated the government.
4: Yes, I, th- I think it was it was maddening because they, you know, they had a sort of sexist attitude anyway, uh, assuming that she was a weak woman who would crumble, who would give up. Uh, she was a foreigner because she'd spent so time much time abroad. So, you know, they were trying to persuade themselves that she wouldn't matter for very long, that she would be easily quelled. And to the contrary, she stood up to them. She survived at least two attempts to kill her, one of them quite serious and deliberate. So the regime finally, under the general, who is now the ex-general president of the country, Thane Sane, and who is more intelligent than his predecessors, realized that they couldn't beat her. They would have to co-opt her in some way or another. And that's the process that has been going on underway since 2010.
0: We've heard some criticism, some of which has been sharp and pointed that since she became a member of parliament, she's not been vocal enough in supporting minorities such as the Rohingya, the Muslim minority, the Rohingya group. Is there something to that criticism?
4: Oh, very much so. Yeah, this is a big sort of cloud that's appeared in the sky since her release, really. Because she is sort of a synonym for uh, human rights, for courage, for resistance to persecution, they were expecting her to stand up and speak out for the Rohingya and for the Muslims in general when they were persecuted and this she really has failed to do. She's been asked the question many times and she's given many kind of answers but none of them really amount to a ringing declaration of support or ringing condemnation of the attacks on the Muslim community. I don't want to try and exculpate her or sort of be her spokesperson on this but I understand part of the rationale, which is that her enemies are always trying to lump her together with foreign elements of one sort or another. And I think she probably sees this as a trap, which she absolutely must not fall into, because there is a lot of anti-Muslim feeling among ordinary Burmese. And if she were to identify herself with the Muslim minority, she fears, I suspect, that she would lose a lot of her mainstream Buddhist support. This is not to excuse her silence, but it helps to explain why, as somebody who is determined to survive politically, she has been very timid on this matter.
0: Mm. Well, so maybe she's doing what it takes to get into power and then she will return to her freedom fighter roots once she gains power. Is that the thought?
4: I think that having basically lost her family, uh, lost you know, everything that mattered to her in the first 35 years of her life in order to achieve a political breakthrough, that is her very clear focus. And I don't say she'll do whatever it takes because she's not really interested in personal power. She's interested in turning Burma into a functioning democracy and increasing the amount of freedom and improving it as a country. And that's her mission. And I think that she is determined to attain power in order to achieve that. And so, in a sense, she has a certain sort of steeliness about that.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Peter Popham is a journalist with the British newspaper The Independent and author of the book The Lady and the Peacock, a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi. In the heart of downtown Yangon, formerly known as Rangoon, the 2,500-year-old Sule Pagoda buzzes with the chants of monks and worshippers. Over the years, this iconic Buddhist structure has been a major attraction for both the pious and the political, serving as a rallying point for the 1988 student uprisings and again for the 2007 Saffron Revolution. Here in Burma's former capital, the country's incredible diversity of cultures, backgrounds, religions, and ethnicities are crushed together in the rapidly developing city. Yet many people share the experience of decades of oppressive isolationism and military rule. Reporter Adam Ramsey visited Yangon to get the pulse of the people before this fall's election.
3: Meandering through gridlock traffic below the Sule Pagoda, Burmese Muslims filter past their Buddhist countrymen and cross the street to the Bengali Sunni Jame Mosque, just in time for sunset prayer. Down a small alley by the mosque is Mung, Mung Nyant's electronic store. In a small air-conditioned office at the back of his shop,
11: he considers how the political landscape is changing.
5: I haven't seen any real democracy in
11: my lifetime but everybody wants to see something new. We even have a common saying now, whenever we go to the funeral, we feel sad for the person because they never had a chance to see democracy.
3: Nyunt has followed international affairs since childhood, and he's now keen to analyze politics a little closer to home. And yet, even with his excitement, he's quick to temper his positivity.
11: I am really not too optimistic I think these transitional problems will continue for decades. A few blocks to the east of
3: Sule Pagoda, Tan Tan Nang busies herself at her food stall, quickly loading plates with hot food and shouting orders to her family. For her, the politics of elections come second to surviving, and the practical realities of making a living. The reason I am not interested in the elections is we are running a business. So we can't keep politics in mind too much. I have to care about myself. I have to struggle myself, whichever government comes in. Just around the corner from her food stand sits a small newspaper shop. Inside, Chawana So feels torn between a desire for a stability that won't threaten his livelihood, and a desire for a National League for Democracy victory and
4: positive change.
11: I am worried about whether the demonstrators will cooperate or if the elections will be cancelled because I witnessed the Saffron Revolution and when that happened I had to stop my business for some time. If something like the nineteen eighty demonstration happens again I truly worry what the future of my business will be.
3: Another part of his anxiety lies in the constitutional ruling that bars Aung San Suu Kyi from becoming president. For him this is a sure sign that true change is not coming anytime soon. Everybody wants change, everybody
11: hopes there will be change, but I have to say that the change that everybody hopes for is not really happening so far
3: while the international community and many within Burma place the spotlight solely on Aung San Suu Kyi for the ordinary people of Burma the priorities are simple a chance to democratically enforce positive changes for others like them reforms have been a start but with the elections just around the corner too many feel there is too much at stake where too little is guaranteed for America abroad I'm Adam Ramsey in Yangon, Burma.
1: The pace of the change that's going on now is really scaring a lot of people, uh, particularly in the older generation.
0: That's former diplomat to Burma, Priscilla Clapp.
1: Many of them were comfortable with military rule and with the stasis that it brought in the country.
0: Clapp says this discord between the younger and older generations is to blame for much of the tension that remains in Burma. She said this was at the heart of a recent student protest gone wrong in the city of Letpadan, about 90 miles north of Yangon.
4: Okay, you can see here, this is a, one of the main roads going into the center of Yangon. The riot police, seem pretty determined that they're not going to tolerate this student demonstration. The, the U.N. Here, special
0: rapporteur Alice, on the human rights situation in Burma, yang Lee, talked about the incident in her report to the General Assembly.
6: I was very disturbed by reports on 10 March that excessive and disproportionate force had been used against students and other civilians and that 127 people were subsequently arrested.
1: I don't agree with what the government did. I certainly don't. In fact, I've had some very strong words with them about it.
6: Former
0: U.S. diplomat to Burma, Priscilla Clapp.
1: They know they made a mistake. They know that they allowed the students to provoke them. But when I was there, I did not find much public sympathy for the actions of the students. There's certainly sympathy for reform of education, but not really for taking the attitude that you can't negotiate, that you can't work within democratic processes.
0: Indeed, despite this setback, Priscilla Clapp is confident the upcoming elections will be fair.
1: There's plenty of opportunity for dirty tricks, no question about it. And everybody's expecting some dirty tricks. But on the whole, they're expecting to be able to vote the way they want to vote this time. They couldn't in 2010. That was an engineered election, and the NLD was was cut out of the election Uh, This time they're going to be in
0: it. They're going to be winning big. Robert Herman disagrees. He's vice president for regional programs at Freedom House, an independent watchdog organization based in Washington
9: as things stand right now, there's no way that anyone could say that Burma today is ready to have election. We know that people, many people are, uh, are effectively disenfranchised. You can't have journalists being arrested. You can't have citizens who are doing nothing more than exercising their fundamental freedoms to come to the, as it were, the town square to protest, being arrested or otherwise harassed and intimidated. That is not the kind of environment in which you can have a, uh, again, a free and fair and competitive election.
0: The question he says is, how bad
9: really is it? Some people will dismiss this or excuse it and say, well, this is uh, inevitably what happens in the run-up to elections. Others are more concerned that this is a, a deeper retrenchment on the part of the government and think that some of the reforms, and there have been some that have been introduced, there's now a real concern that they're being undone. And the way forward is not entirely clear from a, a, as an observer.
0: Either way, it's something international observers are keeping a close eye on. You're listening to Burma at the Crossroads on America Abroad. Coming up, more on the role of the United States and the rest of the international community. Visit our website for images, extended interviews, and more. We're at americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Burma at the Crossroads on America Abroad. It's estimated that about 5 million Burmese have left the country and settled elsewhere in the region and also in the United States. There are a number of Burmese advocacy groups here working to make change in Burma. One of the most well-known is the U.S. Campaign for Burma in Washington. Their policy advisor is Myra Dagepa. She joins us now. Okay, now I want to start by talking about your personal story. You're a member of the Karen people and... That's a persecuted minority in the southeastern part of the country. Tell us about what it was like growing up there as a member of this group.
12: I was born as an internally displaced person in Karen State, um, very remote area where the Burmese troops and the Karen troops were fighting with each other very often. And so basically my village is were burned down many times. The reason why I say my village is because one village was burned down, we moved to another village, built up, established ourselves, and then very soon after, then the village was burned down, we had to move to another place again. So I had many villages when I was a child. And there were times when I had to stay in the caves, in the jungle for hiding from the Burmese troops. So it was pretty scary always full of fear, not knowing when life is going to lead us for the next day. Are we going to survive? So I'm pretty sure you can imagine if one has to live under such kind of condition.
0: Did anything happen to your family?
12: Yes, and uh, my parents were killed. So as my oldest brother, his wife and his daughter.
0: How old were you when your parents were killed?
12: I was very young. Uh, I didn't even know myself yet when my father was killed and then my mom was killed when I was around four or five years old. And my brother and his wife were killed sometime in mid-90s. So who raised you? I was raised by uh, my uncle, my father's younger brother.
0: Did you really understand why you were being attacked or who was doing it, and for what reason? Well, of
12: course, when I was a child, I I didn't understand a thing, but I grew up, I learned. When did you first
0: realize that this was about differences in ethnicities and? and... Um,
12: I think probably at my early age, like um, 11, 12, 13. But of course, I wouldn't understand the political implication then. All I understood was that uh, we are the Korean people, and we fight for our freedom. And the Burmese troops didn't like it, so they come in and they kill us. Um, of course, as the mindset of a very young child, that's all I could understand. But of course, as I grew up and started getting into the advocacy world, of course, I learn on a daily basis, and then now I reach to the point where I can analyze the situation why. We were killed. We were uh, the uh, the Burmese government or the
0: Burmese troops trying to destroy us. So you were able to get out, go to the United States. Now you're an advocate. How important is American influence in changing Burma, making Burma become more democratic? I do strongly
12: believe that the United States, if our leaders here have the political will, they can still make a huge difference. And uh, I strongly also believe that the Burmese government will listen to it because the United States is a big, important partner for the government of Burma. And there is no way the government of Burma will ignore what the United States will ask for.
0: Did you think it was too soon for the president, President Obama, to visit Burma? It was too soon,
12: We did talk about it. We did bring to his attention that his visit was too soon. The gift was too big. And so we would like the engagement, but with tangible action, tangible outcome. So he started off quite right. But then all of a sudden, he started giving up all the leverages we've been having in the past over a decade. And then he went there, and for the Burmese government, it's a big of legitimacy showing to the world that because they are putting their acts together, and that is why now they are recognized as the, the government that is moving towards democracy. But deep down, there are tons of problems. You name it, we have it all in Burma, and those problems has never gone away yet, and Most importantly, things in did promise President Obama that he will release all the political prisoners by the end of 2014. But that promise didn't happen. And President Obama didn't look into that seriously. But this is something serious for us. If the government of Burma is saying they are really moving towards democratic reform, he should be able to show us the result which
0: he didn't. What would you like the United States to do?
12: I'd like the United States to stay firm, stand on human rights, justice and accountability, and for the dignity of the people of Burma, especially those who are still suffering on daily basis, those who are struggling, fighting, living in fears. I want the United States to stand up for these people and to demand the fulfillment of the basic rights of those people. With that said, we cannot stop the engagement with the Burmese government, but at the same time, do it consciously, do it responsibly, and do it with precondition. So basically, we have to watch for actions. If the Burmese government is promising, do they deliver? If they don't deliver, then maybe it is time to be a little bit harsher, If we wanted to see the result, then we have to do what we need to do instead of just giving away freely.
0: So you're talking about sanctions, things like that.
12: Um, It's not just sanctions. Sanctions is very important. A lot of people argue that sanctions doesn't work, but from my point of view, sanction has been working, and that is why we reached to the point where we are right now. And therefore, whatever sanctions we have left, we still have to maintain it.
0: Are there any Karen left in Burma?
12: Yes, there are some. I mean, one way or the other, none of the ethnic minorities in Burma will disappear. One way or the other, they will find a way to survive. I remember back in uh, early 90s, one of the Burmese high-ranking army officers was saying that if you wanted to see Karen in the next 10 years, you'll see them only in the museum. What does that mean? It means that, He's planning to terminate the whole ethnic group of the Korean people. But here we are, here I am. One way or the other, we're going to fight for our survival. And we're not going to be disappearing in this world.
0: Myra Dagepa is the policy advisor for the U.S. campaign for Burma in Washington. The question of how well do sanctions work is something foreign policy analysts have been studying for a long time and has influenced policy decisions in places ranging from Cuba to Iran. Sanctions have been imposed on Burma three times, once after the 1988 student revolutions, then again after the 1990 elections, which critics called a sham, and again after the 2007 Saffron Revolution. But starting in 2009, things began to change. It was part of a broader foreign policy approach President Obama alluded to during his first inauguration speech.
2: To those who claim to power through corruption and deceit and the silencing of dissent, know that you are on the wrong side of history, but that we will extend a hand if you are willing to unclench your fist.
6: There was a great deal of pressure on Burma to bring about in particular political change. And it wasn't just only from the United States, but there was international pressure.
0: Paula Dobriansky was the Under Secretary of State for Global Affairs in the George W. Bush administration and is now a senior fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs.
6: There was also pressure internally, mainly because of not only the political opposition, but economically. Burma was being left behind.
0: The government felt they were caving to the enormous influence of China, so they were eager to forge a stronger relationship with the West. The Obama administration, in turn, jumped at the potential for an opening. Well, cautiously jumped. Former U.S. diplomat to Burma, Priscilla Clapp.
1: The Obama administration was very wise. In 2009, they put together a new policy that said, we're going to keep the sanctions in place, but we're also going to offset that, with an offer to engage. We're ready to engage. Here's what you have to do to engage with us. And they spelled it out one, two, three, four, five. And so that made sense to these ex generals. And they said, OK, we'll start doing one, two, three, four, five. And they
0: did it. And of course, we had to respond. If we hadn't, they wouldn't have kept doing it. And so in 2012, sanctions were lifted.
6: I think that there was a feeling that the lifting of sanctions gave them contacts, opportunities, both political and economic opportunities, for furthering and for advancing the situation in Burma.
0: But former Undersecretary Paula Dobriansky says ending sanctions in Burma has not had the desired effect.
6: I will say that in hindsight, now, that there has been a backsliding, and that has been of concern going into the elections in Burma. We were willing to work with the Burmese government towards bringing about reforms, and the current state of affairs is very, very disappointing, very disappointing. For the critics who said the sanctions should not have been lifted, actually, they have become vindicated. For those who said that let's lift the sanctions, let's try to work with them and provide an incentive to bring about change, I would say that what is happening on the ground is a grave disappointment.
7: Do we think that just because we are a powerful country, we have the leverage to force or convince other countries to do what we want?
6: That's David
0: Steinberg. He's a professor of Asian studies at Georgetown University, and he's been following the situation in Burma since 1956. He says what's happening in Burma now is not a backslide.
7: Backsliding from what is the question? Backsliding from the authoritarian military? No, obviously not. But backsliding from an ideal that we established, we the West established, for that country without the Burmese actually saying so.
0: Steinberg says the changes happening in Burma are, in fact, rather remarkable.
7: We're talking about a transition in four years from a terribly autocratic government, an authoritarian government, into one which is moving in the direction of a pluralistic society.
0: For the first time in 50 years, the Burmese leadership is open to the idea of federalism. That's a system of government in which authority is shared between the head of government and the various states he or she governs.
7: This is real progress. What kind of federalism, we don't know. Will it be sufficient? We don't know. But at least we're getting the progress of recognizing that the minorities have more rights that need to be implemented. Those rights are stipulated in the Constitution, but they've been ignored.
0: Before Burma determines what it wants to be, Steinberg and others argue they have to come to terms with who they are as Burmese and as members of a global society.
7: We need to continue to talk about democracy and rights, but we also have to talk about this more broadly in terms of a multicultural society that has not come to grips with itself as a multicultural society in any meaningful way. We have an overarching ethos of the United States. We're a multicultural society, but we have a concept of ourselves as Americans. This is critical. Burma doesn't have that. These people do not first think of themselves as Burmese. They think of themselves as Kachin or Chin or Rohingya or whatever, and that has to change, and that's a very gradual change. And we must understand that it is gradual, it involves changes in education, it involves changes in relations with the external community. And this is a long process, but one that is essential for the stability of the region also.
0: Whether you believe Burma is truly on a new path or that it's sliding back into authoritarian rule, there's little doubt that this is a critical moment for the country. This fall. The world will be watching as Burmese citizens head to the polls to elect their new leaders. It remains to be seen whether they will lead the country to a new era of openness. You've been listening to Burma at the Crossroads on America Abroad. This hour was written and edited by Mia Lobel and produced by Rob Sachs, with additional production help from Flawn Williams. Special thanks to producers Jonathan Pedno and James Gray audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the America Abroad or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website at PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Henry Luce Foundation.
2: PRI, Public Radio International.